Good evening. Well, good to have you all with us here tonight, as every Wednesday. We are in Revelation chapter 19. And this evening our text is in verses 11 through 16. Now, when we began the chapter, of course, we found ourselves in John's vision, what God is revealing to him to reveal to us. This chapter comes after all of the activities of the great tribulation period. When the wrath of God is being poured out onto this Christ-rejecting world. I'm going to ask you just to bear with me for just a moment because things changed on my little note thing here and and, uh, it keeps... uh, me from doing what I need to do here. Uh, And I'm just standing here not knowing what I'm doing. But I'm going to figure it out here as quick as I can because we need to we need to get a moving on here. (laughs) But I don't see what I need to see here. So, okay. Well, I'll, I'll play with it as I as I go. So, after all of that, the scene goes back to heaven here in chapter 19. And in chapter 19, we begin to see what God has prepared for all of our time, after man's fall. The redemption, actually, of all those who have come to Christ come to the knowledge of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is that time where the Lord now reveals the truth about what we know as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, we've talked a lot about the marriage aspect of it last week especially based upon the, the, the ancient Jewish traditions of marriage. For certainly that was what was understood both in the Old and the New Testament. And we had to stand upon that particular understanding because that is how God has presented this whole picture. So everything in that particular system is revealed in Christ's love for the church. How He gave Himself for the church. And we spent a considerable amount of time dealing with that last week. What we need to understand before we go on tonight is that the ceremony itself of the Jewish wedding 
was traditionally done in the home of the bridegroom. And there wasn't everybody invited to that. It was only the family that was invited to that ceremony. But then after that took place, then they would go elsewhere to where all people were invited to celebrate this great wedding. And this is what we find now in chapter 19. That the wedding ceremony has taken place in heaven in the, in, in the very uh, 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 place where all the, of the 24 elders and of course uh, all the angels and then everyone that is, that, that, that is in heaven at this time. The church, of course, being the bride of Christ. All true believers from uh, faithful believers of, of old, as well as even new, uh, the, the uh, uh, tribulation saints that were brought in. They become the witnesses to this particular wedding. But it, it doesn't end there. And, and, and it's not like, as if, you know, we, we, all, we oftentimes say, of course, you know, when, when people get married and, and we say, well, you know, they'll live happily ever after. And certainly that's going to happen with the church. But there's still life to be ex- exhibited. There's still life to be lived as far as what needs to uh, take place with this, in this particular wedding. And Christ, having come out of heaven now with his bride, is coming to the earth. Now, all along, we said last week that from John 14, the tie-in to that particular passage is that he was speaking of the Jewish wedding, and everybody understood that when he said, I go to prepare a place for you, but when I do, I'm going to come back and I'm going to receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you will be also. So we're in heaven with him, but then we're going to come back to the earth, because he is coming back to the earth. He said, I'm coming again. Not just to receive you unto myself, but if you read through uh, the, 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 the prophecies of Matthew chapter 24, if, I, if, I, if I'm stumbling a little bit tonight, it's because I bit my tongue. That's really hard to speak when you bite your tongue. So I'm really trying to, you know, to enunciate properly, but it really hurts. Uh, Mark 13, Matthew 24, uh, Luke 21, the, the passages where he's speaking of his second coming. So... Uh, that means that's, that's a separate uh, event from the rapture of the church, which is, of course, what happens first. Uh, John 14 uh, revealing that to us. Okay, well, all of that said, let's look at the next part here, which is verses 11 through 16 of our text. Because the scene is moving from heaven back to earth. And it says in verse 11, Now, John says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. I think we know who this is. I think we have a good idea of who this is. Verse 14 says, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. The hosts of heaven. Now, so, now we're not, not talking just really about 
uh, angels, even though the angels are considered the hosts of heaven. But the armies of heaven as well are included. And that's who he's coming back with. We'll talk about that in, a, in just a little bit. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Most of you who have read Psalm 2 realize that this is going to be the fulfillment of Psalm 2, where he will come to this earth and rule with a rod of iron, and he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is our text for this evening. Now, the verses that we have before us today introduce a great event that has been anticipated for centuries and about which the prophets of old have written extensively. We've all probably have, have heard the, the phrase, the golden age. I'm sure you've heard it used uh, and applied to various and sundry events throughout history. You know, uh, as close to our time, you know, the golden age of television, the golden age of radio, that, that kind of stuff. You know, we use a, that phrase kind of just whenever and for whatever things happen. But there was, there has been golden ages of certain civilizations and uh, great events in history. But it is truly going to be a golden age. It is truly going to be a golden age on earth when all of creation will be subject to its creator and to its redeemer. That will truly be a golden age. But before he reigns on this earth, our Lord and Messiah must subdue every enemy and opposing force. Now, what, we, what have we been talking about now since chapter uh, 6 all the way through chapter 18? That great period we know as the tribulation period. What has been happening in that time? The time that is yet to come, but not very far from the time in which we live today. We've talked often in our study of the book of Revelation on the 70th week of Daniel. The seven week... Uh, period, uh, which is actually a seven-year period. We call it the 70th week of Daniel because there are weeks of years uh, in the understanding of the Hebrew language. The 70th week of Daniel, what we know as the seven years of tribulation, which is also called the time of Jacob's trouble, which of course includes the great tribulation period, which is the last three and a half period, uh, year period, which is where everything is really just kind of breaking loose. Well, this will have, for all intents and purposes, run its course where we are right now as we're looking ahead. The great conflict known as Armageddon is nearing its occurrence now. What we consider the, the, some people call it the Battle of Armageddon, uh, but when you translate the wording of that, it, it really means the War of Armageddon. It's as if to say this is, and you can't really call it a third world war. You know, for many years we used to say there was World War I, World War II, and then Antichrist, is, Antichrist war is really going to be World War III. But we've already had worldwide conflicts. Not, not as great as World War II, but uh, it's building up, and it's a really uh, kind of an interesting way that we deal with wars now, because the, the greatest war we have going on is this war against terror. 
where there aren't really nationalistic lines drawn, even though a tremendous number of those who are in this war on terror from the other side, as it were, uh, are all bound by a certain religion or bound by certain religious things. So, nonetheless, it's a war. And that's what we saw described back in chapter 16 a little bit, not a lot, but uh, at least we were given the area where all of this uh, will be taking place. And up to this point now, Jesus has been directing earth's judgments from his throne in heaven. But now he leaves heaven and he descends to the earth once again, but this time for the purpose of completing the work of judgment before he establishes his millennial kingdom. Now we must make it very clear that when Jesus came the first time, it is very, very clear in the Gospel of John that he came not to judge, but he came to save. This is so important for people to understand. A lot of people don't understand that right now. Because they always have these questions that say, well, why, you know, how, how could anybody say that God is going to judge? And how, I mean, isn't he a good God? Why, 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 why does he all of a sudden have to become a, a bad God and, and judge and, and kill and, and all of these things? They haven't taken the time to look at the very beginning when he created all things to be good. But when man fell in disobedience to God's command, God still had mercy and love to promise that he would send his only begotten son. That he would send the seed of the woman. I'm not going to go into all of that detail because we've been doing We've been talking about this now for about four years in our study in the book of Genesis. So you all should be very grounded on, on, on that issue from Genesis chapter 3. The promise of Messiah in Genesis 3.15. So what we read then in the, in, the, in the Gospel of John about Jesus coming is very clear in, in uh, chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 of John. You all know the first verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world... The first time, and we have to understand that, He did not bring, send Him to condemn the world the first time, but that the world through Him might be saved. And then, of course, we know that He sent Him through the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through Judah, through David, and to the children of Israel. We've already seen that. We saw that very clearly in in Revelation chapter 12. In those particular prophecies that were given. So now before we look at the person of Jesus Christ in this chapter, let me mention the importance of heaven being opened as we see in verse 11 in our text, the very first verse. Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. But I want to deal with this opening of heaven. Because John sees heaven opened for Christ's descent. He sees heaven opened for Christ to descend. In chapter 4, verse 1, if you remember a long time ago, we were in chapter 4, verse 1. 
a door is also opened in heaven. As a matter of fact, let's look at that verse. It's kind of split in two here on our our screen. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. It's important to note that the word standing there is, is, uh, is italicized in the King James, New King James and some other translations to mention that it's really not there. It's only there for clarity. But the fact is it really says a door open in heaven. So after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. We said that the phrase after these things dealing with what Jesus did and dealing with the church and the seven churches of, uh, of Revelation, the seven churches of Asia Minor, which were uh, patterns of churches to follow and so on and so forth, really dealing with the church age, which we're still in today. After this, he says, I looked and behold a door open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this, and, and we spent a considerable amount of time talking about that as being representative of the fact that after ch- chapter 4, there is no mention whatsoever of the church again. And therefore, we tied that into the rapture of the church. Now, these two openings that we find in chapter 4 and chapter 19 present the pivotal points of the book of Revelation. These are both pivotal points, very important points in the book of Revelation because they mark the clear distinction between Christ's coming for His saints and His coming with His saints. Both of those points are very important. The doors are open for Christ to come for His saints the first time and it's open in chapter 19 for Christ to come to earth again with His saints. The first opening discloses the rapture of the church. The second opening unfolds the revelation of Jesus Christ, who is the faithful and true and righteous judge. Now, all who enter heaven through the door in chapter 4 will come again with Christ when heaven is open in chapter 19. So that's uh, a tremendous hope for us as we are here today, hopefully all believers in Jesus Christ. But focusing our attention now on verses 11 through 13 of chapter 19, we see now the person of Christ Jesus in preparation for His coming again to this earth. So let's look at this picture of Jesus Christ. This is, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now that is, the, that is a distinctive of Jesus that when he does things, he does it always in righteousness. So when he judges, he judges in righteousness. When he makes war, he makes war in righteousness. It's never just to make war. Not just to be mean. Not just to show off his power. No. He's given enough time for people to know why He came the first time, which was to die on a cross for the sins of men. But then in verse 12 it says, His eyes were like a flame of fire. Have we seen that before? Yes. We saw it in in chapter 1, verse 14. We'll come back, back to that. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on His head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word 
of God. So, in this passage, we see the inauguration of the apocalyptic revealing of Jesus Christ. In other words, the apocalyptic. Now, I use that word purposely because I know that sometimes it's used to talk about a, a future destruction. I'd rather use it in a more broad sense, in a, in a broader sense, to say that it's really dealing with something that is yet to come. Uh, when we talk about the fact that the name Revelation, the, the, the book of Revelation, is really the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Apocalypse just means a revealing, the revealing of Jesus Christ. But this is now the revealing of Jesus after He has ascended into heaven, after, you know, the, the period of time we know as the church age and, and the time of the church. And, and, and then, of course, when, when that's done and completed and, and the tribulation itself is, is near its completion, then we see Him in a totally different way. We got a peak of that back in chapter 1, as we'll see in just a moment. But now is this re, uh, apocalyptic revealing of Jesus Christ, His real and actual appearing on the earth. Now, for many centuries, scoffers have mockingly and insultingly asked the question, where is the promise of His coming? And the sad thing for me, I think today, is that there's even people in the church that are, are, are saying those very things. All you guys that are, you know, futuristic, you know, believers uh, in, 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 in Jesus coming again and coming for the, in, for the church and the rapture and all of that, which is all just ridiculous, it's just ridiculous, it's just not going to happen. Where is the promise of His coming? Well, it's here in the Scriptures. I don't know what book or Bible they're reading, but in my Bible it says that Jesus said, I'm coming again. And with a lot of purpose is He coming. So where is the promise of His coming? As a matter of fact, the Apostle Peter points this out prophetically in his second letter to the church when he writes this in 2 Peter chapter 3. Look at verses 1-4. through 4. He says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. He says, I'm just reminding you of things that I've spoken to you about before, but I write to you this second epistle that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. So he's not just counting upon his having had that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that personal time where he is actually repeating what Jesus said about him coming again. He says, I refer you first to the holy prophets, because they're the ones that have said that Jesus was going to come, that the Messiah was going to appear when he said he would. And of the commandment of us the apostles of the Lord and Savior, uh, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust. So in other words, they're scoffing the coming of Jesus Christ. They're, they're mocking you know, the, those who believe that Jesus Christ is coming again, but it's because they're, they're walking according to their own lust. They, they're really not... Con- Concerned about the coming of Jesus. They, they really don't want Jesus to come because they're living just for themselves. According to their own lusts, their own desires, their own passions. But then he says and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, in other words, ah, since the patriarchs and the prophets all died. All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, things are just going on and on and on. I guess eventually they'll just end. What is the, uh, what is the mindset of the evolutionists today? 
Well, there was some kind of a big bang and all of a sudden, you know, things happen and, you know, just it was happenstance and there's no real God. There's no God. God, man, you know, man creates God. But, but eventually you die, you, you, you just die. There's a, a, there's a purposeless life. We're all living purposeless lives. I mean, that's, that's their bottom line. So Peter points this out. But those scoffers, the scoffers of old and the scoffers of today, are going to be silenced. They're going to be silenced. Seen here in this passage, Jesus is the rider on a white horse. This brings to mind another rider of a white horse in chapter 6. But don't think it's the same rider. I told you way back then when we were in chapter 6 that we were going to bring that comparison contrast to him. We didn't do it back then. We'll do it now. Verse 1, it says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. Now remember, this is Revelation 6, verse 1. This is after the scene in heaven where there's rejoicing and all, and Jesus has taken the seals, and he starts to break the seals. Because it is in the breaking of the seals that the judgments begin. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying when a, well, with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So this writer in chapter 6, of course, is not Christ Jesus. It isn't the risen Christ. He is the first, what we call the first horseman of the apocalypse, which suggests the coming of a false peace at the beginning of the tribulation period. There's a false peace. How do we know that? Well, it says that he had a bow, but it doesn't suggest that there's any arrows. So it, 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 it suggests some power, but he's put the arrows away to say, listen, we're, we're going to have peace. Yet, it says, a crown was given to him. And again, these are representations that come from the enemy and the Antichrist. So this is all wrapped up in the understanding of of, of the Antichrist spirit. But a crown was given to him, which means authority, which is what the Antichrist wants. And then it says, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So... How do you go out conquering, but you don't have any arrows? Unless you've hidden the arrows, and, and you just show the bow to say, well, you know, we're going to have peace. Yet it's a false peace. We know that because we've studied some other scriptures, especially in Second Thessalonians and First Thessalonians, that deal with the son of perdition. They deal with the fact that uh, there's going to be people crying peace and safety. He says, when you hear peace and safety, what does Paul say? Then sudden destruction comes. When you've been lulled into thinking that things are going to be better and and peaceful and, 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 and prosperous, you're in for a lot of trouble. So he carries a bow without errors. He wears a crown of his own fashioning. And still his goal is to go out and conquer. 
And we see the contrast between the two writers even more clearly in the title that is given to Jesus in our text. Because in our text, Jesus is called the faithful and true. But the, whiter, the writer, I should say, on the white horse in chapter 6 was actually faithless and untrue. An imitation, an imitation and a counterfeit of Jesus Christ. All along we have said that the Antichrist, whether Antichrist as a person or Antichrist as a spirit, it's all a counterfeit of the real Christ. So he is an imitation and a counterfeit of Jesus Christ, this rider on this white horse. Don't forget what the scriptures have taught us about the deceptions of the enemy. That he will at times appear as an angel of light to deceive. To deceive. Now Jesus in our text is presented as the faithful and true witness. Or the faithful and true. We have read already earlier on about Jesus being the faithful and true witness in the letter to the Laodicean church in Revelation 3 verse 14 where it says unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write these things says the amen the faithful and true witness notice the beginning of the creation of God not that he was the first thing to be created because he was the creator but it says he was the faithful and the true witness so Jesus is seen as coming to execute righteous judgment on the earth as he said now this is what Jesus said he would do. His promises and his warnings have been rejected by many. But in that day, all will know that he is faithful and true to his word. You see how that counters to this idea of the scoffer who says, where is the promise of his coming? And again, Jesus all along said, I'm coming. I'm coming again. This is what is going to be happening when I come. And this is why I referred you to Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. The Olivet Discourse. The discourse that Jesus gave when asked about the time of the coming of Messiah. The first few things that he says had to do with do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. For many will say, I am the Christ. Whether they are saying that Jesus is the Christ and yet being deceptive about it, or saying about themselves, I am the Christ. That we've, we've already experienced a number of people that say that they themselves are the Christ, or they say, yeah, Jesus is the Christ, but they have a totally different uh, perspective or a totally different doctrine. Uh, take, uh, take, for example, just the, uh, uh, we were speaking about this earlier today, but uh, take, uh, take, for example, the Mormon church. They, they believe, they, they, have a, they have a book, as a matter of fact, one of the books that they call Jesus the Messiah. Sounds good. They're called, uh, as far as uh, a uh, uh, title, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But when you read about their Jesus... He's not the same Jesus of the Bible. 
especially with all of the things that are written in all the other books that they write. So they say he's a Christ, but he is, but this Jesus isn't the same Jesus of, of, of the scriptures. So anyway, that does just give you an idea of, of what we're dealing with here. So Jesus is seen as coming to execute righteous judgment on the earth, as he said. His promises and his warnings have been rejected, but in that day we all will know that he's faithful and true. Now when he appears on the earth again, it will be, as it says, to, to judge and make war. But his judgment and his war will be those of the perfect and righteous God-man, the faithful and true one. And when it says that he makes war and he judges, it says he does it in righteousness. As for Jesus being judge, we need to talk about this a little bit here tonight. As for Jesus being judge, what many people both in the church and outside of the church seem to ignore is what the scriptures say about Jesus being set forth to judge all of mankind. In fact, consider what the Lord declares of Himself. If, if you go back to John 5, and I want you to turn to the 5th chapter of, of, the, of the Gospel of John. John 5, verses uh, 22 and 23, and then 25 through 27, and then verse 30. But let's look at verses 22 and 23. Jesus is speaking. And He says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Now I would say that's pretty clear, isn't it? The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Now, if you jump over to verse 25. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. So there's another statement of, of Jesus himself saying that the Son will be the one to execute judgment. And then if you just jump down to verse 30, Jesus said, I can of myself do nothing. Now remember when he speaks of this, he, he speaks in, in, in two... In, you have to understand two things. The first thing is, as he's speaking, he has voluntarily humbled himself to take upon himself flesh. And even though he is sinless, he has humbled himself to this position so that he would have this body of flesh and blood so that he could, in time, and of course within those three and a half years of his earthly ministry, die on a cross shed his blood for the forgiveness to be the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. Considering again the Jewish uh, understanding of, of sacrifice and offering. I can of myself do nothing. The other, the other thing then of course is that as, as the Godhead, there is God the Father, there is God the Son, there is God the Holy Spirit. You know, the Spirit, uh, when you read through chapters of 14, 15, 16 of, of the Gospel of John. It gives you an idea of how it is, you know, the Spirit that listens to what Christ has to say. Christ listens to what the Father has to say. But in, but in any event, they're, they, they're all one. So he says, I can of myself, and again, this is, uh, this is something that he humbles himself to do. I can of myself do nothing, but as I hear, I judge. 
And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So we have to understand all of that about the Lord when it comes to the fact that the Father has given him the authority to execute all judgment. Now, Peter, in speaking of Jesus in the house of Cornelius and and Acts chapter 10, makes a very interesting statement about Jesus being the judge when he says in Acts 10.42, he says that he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God the Father to be judge of the living and the dead. So once again, now Peter, as one of the apostles, is called to preach this very thing, that Jesus is the one called by God the Father to be the judge of the living and the dead. And even the apostle Paul, in preaching uh, to the men of Athens there uh, on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, Interestingly enough, he would also say this. He would say to them, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, verse 31, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by or through the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Do we know who that is? Well, the only one that we know that God raised from the dead was Jesus. And and the understanding is He raised Him from the dead, He'll never die again. Remember when Jesus uh, raised Lazarus from the dead? Poor Lazarus, man. I mean, he he had life after that, but then he had to die again. I don't want to die two times, Lord. But it was a good example of showing the power of Christ over death. On the day that remember the day that Jesus died, there was an earthquake, and tombs and grave uh, uh, tombs were open, and the dead were coming out of them. Uh, it's it's amazing what the Lord was trying to say. Hey, I have power over death. Power over death. So anyway, he's he's speaking of uh, of Jesus here. Paul is. So in righteousness, here's the phrase, in righteousness he judges and makes war. And so Jesus is coming to righteously judge the people and fight against those who are living in rebellion against him. And I have to say that when you look around the world today, there's a lot of people that really are in rebellion against God, against Christ, against his word and against his people a lot when we think of wars we see them fought many times for man's own personal gain Jesus himself said before he comes again that there would be wars and rumors of wars And there are today wars and rumors of wars almost every day. And we hear of them almost instantly now because of the worldwide communications that that we're able to, to receive. And I think that that is significant in the way that the Lord himself has 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 said this in his in his prophecies about the coming of, of this time of tribulation. 
people are going to know. Whereas turning into night here on the other side of the world is already another day. That's made reference to in the book of Revelation. That's made reference to in a lot of the prophetic writings of the, of the prophets themselves. As we're looking at the fulfilling of all of these things happening. But there's also wars because of men. And I think of the millions of people that died because of one man. The nearly 7 million Jewish people that died because of Adolf Hitler. I think of anywhere between 10 and, 10 and 30 million people who died because of Stalin in, in Russia. And many of them Jewish. And you can think of many other names. Pol Pot, back in the 60s, in, I believe in Cambodia, Laos area there. Mao Zedong in China. Personal gain. Out of their own sin nature. You know, we're told in James chapter 4, a very interesting thing in verse 1, he, uh, James says, Where do wars, wars and fights come from among you? Give me a moment. My tongue's not working again. <laughs> Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? He's making very clear. Wars did not start with God. When God created all things, He created all things to be good. And He said they were good. Read chapter 1 of Genesis again. It was the enemy introducing sin into the garden in chapter 3 and man not listening to what God had said and disobeying God ever since then man has fought wars Genesis chapter 4 very personal war between two brothers Cain and Abel. And just take it from there. Because that may be man's motivation, but it's not the Lord's motivation. His judgment is righteous, and His war is righteous. He has been patient, He has been long-suffering, over man's rebellion against him, and now it is time to deal with that rebellion. It really amazes me how many people want today and have over the past maybe 120 years of, of, of trying to water down the Word of God theologically. But it really, really amazes me how many people want to define or redefine and control the purposes and plans and power of Jesus Christ. Think about that for a moment. People are trying to redefine the Scriptures. How can you redefine what is very clear and solidly written and have been kept for thousands of years? 
Thank God for His inspiration. Thank God for His, His keeping reliable the Word of God. This is one reason I tell you why I struggle sometimes with modern translations. Because people in, in, in some of these uh, types of, of uh, paraphrasing uh, things that are said in the Scriptures, they put ideas of their own into the statements and say, well, this is just to make it a little bit easier to understand. It's not a matter of being easy to understand. It's a matter of trusting that God is going to make us understand what He wants us to know about His Word. And He's made that very clear. So is it any wonder that the world and even some of what we call the visible church today, I mean, it's just like whoever goes to church, you know, just because you say you're, you know, you go to church, you know, and you say you're a Christian, doesn't make you a Christian. Any more than standing in your garage makes you a car. But is it any wonder that the world and even some of the visible church likes a complacent, listen, likes a complacent, reasonable religion and an anemic, emasculated Jesus who holds to a milk-toast, weak, moderate doctrine of sentimental affection? That was a mouthful. I had to think that through a lot today. Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus, meek. Never mild. He said what He said, and He meant everything that He said. When He overturned the table of the money changers, was it Jesus, meek and mild? When he had to speak to his own disciple and say to him directly, Get thee behind me, Satan. Was that Jesus meek and mild? But today we redefine everything. Some of these Hollywood stars, you know, that my Jesus loves everybody. And accepts everybody. For God so loved the world, yes. That He gave His only begotten Son, yes. That whosoever, sinner, whosoever is a sinner, should not perish because of that sin or sins that they have lived under and in and because of all their lives should not perish, but have everlasting life. If it was just a matter of saying, well, He loves everybody, He accepts everything and everybody, and everything that everybody does and wants to do now, because we're changing everything. We've changed the laws in our country about, about marriage. Makes me wonder whether real marriage is really precious anymore. And even that, when you think about it, back in the 60s when we had the free love revolution, you know. Influence. The Word of God. The commandments of God is the law. And the Word of God in Christ for the mercies 
of, of the people of the nation. Where has all of that gone? If anyone wants to stay, I'll be here for another hour talking about that. No, I'm just kidding. Not going to do it. Let's all stand. <laughs> Not going to do that tonight.